Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Camille Labchuk. Camille is a Toronto-based animal rights lawyer and executive director of Animal Justice, Canada's only animal law advocacy organization. Under her leadership, Animal Justice fights legal cases in courtrooms across the country, works to promote and pass groundbreaking new animal protection legislation, and ensures laws already on the books are being enforced. Camille has intervened in precedent-setting cases to protect and enhance animals' legal interests at all levels of court, including the Supreme Court of Canada. She regularly testifies before legislative committees and was instrumental in passing precedent-setting national ban on whale and dolphin captivity last year. She has filed false advertising complaints against companies making misleading, humane claims, documented Canada's commercial seal slaughter, and exposed hidden suffering behind the closed doors, farms, and zoos through undercover investigations. Camille also has a strong interest in defending and protecting the rights of animal advocates, including the rights of people to follow a vegan diet. Camille is a frequent lecturer on law, a regular contributor to national publications like The Globe and Mail and Lawyers Daily, and her work has been featured in countless media stories. She lives with two black rescued cats, Sadie and Cecily. Camille, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much, Stacey. It's great to be here. So I also should add that I met you virtually through your podcast that you do called Paw and Order, which I reviewed in a blog post back in February of 2020. Folks can <laughs> search Paw and Order on our website and the blog post will come up, but I think you have a fantastic podcast. So from one podcaster to another, I'd like to say congratulations and thank you for putting that show together. Oh, well, thanks for the kind words. We have a blast with it. It's a really good chance to delve into some of the Canadian legal issues facing animals, but we touch on international work too. So some of your listeners are in Canada or other countries, they might find it interesting. So I just wanted to jump right into things. Tell me first and foremost, you know, how did you become so passionate about animals? Well, I always had cats when I was growing up, hamsters, other animals, and I cared about them. But my first memory of anybody being mean to an animal is when I was about nine years old and I saw footage of the commercial seal hunt on the television. And I just couldn't believe that somebody would club a baby seal to death. So, you know, I went to university. I didn't really contemplate doing animal work as a career. I was vegetarian at that point and I later went vegan. But I was later working in politics for the leader of Canada's Green Party, Elizabeth May. And I saw how her legal training helped her every single day in the work that we did. And I'd become more and more passionate about trying to do some work for animals. I'd actually gone out to the seal hunt myself in the meantime with some organizations that documented it and used those images to take to Europe and bring in an export ban at the European Union, or an import ban, I should say, for seal products. So I was getting a taste of animal advocacy, and I saw that there wasn't much of an animal law movement in Canada. So I thought, why don't I marry up this lawyer thing with this animal protection thing and go to law school? So 10 years later, here I am, and very happy that I went down this path. 
Wow. You got very focused very quickly, it seems. You know, usually people, I shouldn't say this generalization, but sometimes people go to law school because they don't necessarily know what they want to do. But it sounds like you really found your passion and merged them together. And in 10 years, it sounds like you've done an incredible amount of work. I mean, what's it like you know, presenting in front of the Supreme Court of Canada? Oh, well, it's great. It's great. I think one thing that we've managed to do with animal justice is use the fact that we're lawyers, we understand the law, we're experts in the area, to enter into institutions where animal issues are typically marginalized and not really listened to. So when animal justice went to the Supreme Court, we intervened in a case about the abuse of a dog, the sexual abuse of a dog, actually. And it was the first time that the Supreme Court had heard in person like that from an intervener who was squarely focused on the interests of the animals. So my colleague, Peter Zankoff, who co-hosts our podcast with me, he actually stood up and spoke and said, animal justice is here today to represent the interests of the animals who have no voices of their own in this proceeding. And I think that's what we've been able to do both in courtrooms, but also in the halls of parliaments and legislatures. We've been able to go in there and make sure that legislators, that judges, that these people with powerful roles to play in the laws protecting animals, make sure that they hear that the issues matter to people, that these are emerging important topics that they need to pay attention to. So, you know, since I'm not as very familiar with everything that's going on in Canada and with a focus on cats, since we are the Community Cats podcast, what are some of the things that are going on in Canada that you're aware of that help benefit cats? Well, you know, interestingly, our laws in Canada haven't changed much until very recently. It was just this past year that any new federal animal cruelty legislation got amended in a significant way. So in terms of general animal cruelty laws, things have been stalled for a while, but I think that's starting to move. But one really cool development that we've been seeing with respect to cats in particular is that people are really waking up about the idea that cat declawing shouldn't be a practice that we allow anymore in society. And what we're seeing is various provinces starting to take action. It's interesting because it's not always happening through the law. It's not always the case that provinces are just saying this practice of cat declawing is illegal. We've seen one province, Nova Scotia, on our East Coast, do that and outright ban cat declawing through the law. But the trend has actually been more that veterinary associations, so these are provincial regulatory bodies that set rules for how vets must conduct themselves, they're saying to their members that vets just can't perform the practice of cat declawing anymore because it's so cruel and unnecessary and we know it's just very very bad for cats. So that's been very, very positive, And we're hoping to see even more uh, moves. We've now got most provinces except for the two big ones, Ontario and Quebec, they're still outstanding. So we're hoping for action at the federal level or potentially at the provincial level too, to outright ban cat declawing. That would be wonderful, actually. Very great. I think it's so fascinating that it is happening from within the Veterinary Association. Do you know who have been the movers from within the Veterinary Association to make that precedent happen? Absolutely. There tends to be a couple of vets in every province who get very passionate about this. So there was a veterinarian in Nova Scotia. His name is Dr. Hugh, who I know, and he was the one who got the ball moving there and ended up getting the provincial ban in place through the law. I know the other veterinarian in Manitoba, Dr. Jonas Watson, who was responsible for really driving it forward there. So it's great that it's been vet driven. We know there's a lot of veterinarians who still do support and perform cat declawing procedures. But I think there's more who've already said just in their own practices that they won't do it. And they're the ones pushing from within for these bans. So that's great. It's something very interesting for a veterinarian to think about. I mean, it would seem maybe it would be better for them to approach their veterinary associations and maybe have more impact that way than going through your traditional legal route. Would one way be shorter than the other? 
Well, typically trying to get anything passed through a legislature can be a long process. They have so many competing priorities that it takes a while just to complete the legislative procedure and get a bill passed. And then, of course, there's an uncertainty about whether you're going to be successful because of procedural delays, because of political considerations, because the organizations like some veterinarians might lobby against banning cat declawing. But with veterinary associations, it tends to be much quicker. So they can, to my understanding and knowledge, I think that they can just pass a resolution at an AGM or a policy meeting and then impose that on their veterinary members the next day. It's very fast. That's great. Yeah, I think we should look at that in the United States. I am not aware of a veterinary association that has done that in the United States, but that doesn't mean that that hasn't happened. So folks, if you're out there and you're listening to this podcast right now and you know of some veterinary associations in the United States that have done this, please let me know and we'll make sure we get them acknowledged for their good service. I'd like to sort of change the topic away from declawing and let's talk a little bit about community cats and community cats in Canada and how they're treated, you know, from your perspective. What are the things around free roaming cats, community cats? Are there concerns? There are certainly heated arguments at times between the bird organizations and the cat organizations with regards to predation and that kind of stuff. But I was wondering, what are the topics around community cats that really stand out to you? Well, I would say that that same debate about cats versus birds happens here in Canada, too, and it's no less heated and an important discussion to have for sure. One of the things that we've been thinking a lot about at Animal Justice is about how it is that as a society we address and help community cats. And I think the same is probably true in the United States. But in Canada, the issue tends to be moved forward by groups of wonderful volunteers. So people who get together and care for community cats, people who do TNR work to protect the community cats. But this tends to be a community-led process. It doesn't tend to have as much government support as I think it should have. And so we've been pushing for a while for governments to take more of a role in helping out TNR activities, helping community cats helping shelters and animal advocacy and rescue efforts more generally. We don't think that this should be something that's privately supported by donations from the public. We think that animals matter as members of our communities and that governments should be stepping up to the plate and funding this and providing resources to make sure that these groups can do what they need to do. Say goodbye to scooping. Say hello to a better litter box. Introducing Kitty Sift, the eco-friendly, waterproof litter box made of recycled cardboard. Just lift, sift, and reuse. See it on Amazon or go to kittysift.com and use coupon code PODCAST for 15% off. By now you know that Dubert is the go-to place for volunteer-based animal rescue transport. But you may not know that Dubert does so much more to help you with your animal rescue efforts. Did you know that Dubert helps you manage high-volume transport using your vehicle? They even help you collaborate with the source or destination organization to select the animals to go on the transport. And if you're looking for fosters, look no further because Dubert is the only place with more than 27,000 volunteers across the country that any rescue or shelter organization can access for free. If you haven't checked out Dubert in a while, now's the time to check back in. The team at Dubert is always innovating new ways to save you time so you can save more animals. Just go to www.dubert.com to get started today. 
It was interesting at our online cat conference that we had back in January, we took a poll of our attendees and we asked how many people feel that municipalities should play a role in funding and supporting trap neuter return programs or affordable spay neuter programs. 98% of that group felt that there should be some public financial involvement, which is really funny because the area that I'm from in New England, there really is very little public support in that arena. So I found that an incredibly interesting statement from the attendees and interesting, very interesting, because it can be a hot topic. We also talked a lot about the concept of return to field versus trap new to return. And return to field, in some cases, is more of returning the cat back, but not necessarily knowing who's feeding that cat, who's providing shelter to that cat, but the cat looks good, the cat's healthy, obviously must have a feeder somewhere, must have shelter somewhere, the code is good. But we're using the body type of the cat to tell us that the cat has a good home life, but we really don't know what that home life is. So how does the concept of abandonment, a lot of people talk about, well, that's abandoning a cat. I find it a very difficult question to think about, to understand how deep do we have to go to understand how well is that cat taken care of? I don't know if you have any thoughts on this topic. Yeah, that's an interesting topic. And as you know, it's just a a very complicated one. I mean, I guess the issue is that we all want to do what's best for cats, but you can't always know what is best for them, what they need and what they want, because they can't necessarily tell us. So it's up to us to try to make observations and figure out what's going on with a cat and whether the situation of being released is better than one of being, you know, kept somewhere and eventually adopted or taken into a home. Yeah, no, it's one of those issues that I don't think has an easy answer. I, I think that the work that people are doing to help the population of cats that already lives outside and to minimize the future populations from coming into existence, I think that's the best way to tackle the root of the problem. And in the meantime, we all just have to try to do our best to figure out what's best for them. We talked a little bit before we hit the record button about the concept of putting animals at risk or what does that mean? Or there's a sort of a new legal concept. At least this is something that I learned in one of your podcasts, which was around the topic of what does it mean to put an animal at risk and what are your responsibilities? I don't remember the specifics around that conversation, but I don't know, you had mentioned a little bit about it being sort of a new concept. Would you like to share that with us? Yeah, sure. So I think my colleague Peter and I chatted about this on the podcast in the summer in the context of the Calgary Stampede Rodeo, which unfortunately sees animals die in the rodeo every single year. They die because of the activities they're forced to participate in, usually horse racing activities where they pull wagons and the horses often get tangled up in each other and die. And I think what started the conversation was discussing whether it was possible in any way to take legal action against the organizers of those races for putting those animals at risk of dying, which they inevitably do. And there's some complexities there with the law in terms of how you prosecute somebody who puts an animal at risk and what degree of risk and knowledge that the animal might suffer is foreseeable enough that they can be prosecuted. And it's a bit of a tricky situation. But the discussion was resumed recently because Ontario actually brought in some new animal protection laws. It's an interesting situation. The province has traditionally had animal law enforcement done by the Ontario SPCA, which is private charity and like most SPCA's fundraises to do its work. That whole system was challenged as unconstitutional in court. And as a result of the court case, the province brought in a new system where it's no longer the SPCA that enforces laws, but it's a public agency. It's a public animal welfare inspectorate. And they brought this in, which is something that we really supported and thought was a good move in the right direction. And they also made some improvements to the actual underlying laws that that new organization is enforcing. And one of those things that was pretty groundbreaking and revolutionary, because it's the first time I'm aware of seeing it, is they made it an offense to put an 
animal at risk of harm. So that played right into the discussion that we were having about these types of rodeo events where animals might be put at risk and it can be difficult to prosecute them. So this is still a new and untested area and we're hoping that it might be fruitful and make it easier to go after people who use animals for entertainment and the animals later suffer. But, you know, it's an interesting situation too for pet abandonment. If you think about the idea that leaving an animal behind definitely puts that animal at risk of starvation, of dying of thirst, of dying of exposure, I think it's an interesting way too to think about our responsibilities towards animals who we might abandon. Yeah. And that's sort of the thought process that I took when I was listening to the podcast, which was how does this level of risk translate, you know, across all sort of different areas? And, you know, my definition of risk might not be your definition of risk. So obviously then that's where you need, I guess, the law to define what risk really is. And then the judges decide how that's interpreted. I would assume that would be the process. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this new law has only been in effect since the beginning of December, so just about two months now. So we'll be definitely watching it closely to see how that plays out and what kinds of cases are brought and what the judges have to say about it. One of the other things that I heard on the podcast, I believe Peter was talking a bit about how you know it's so important for us to treat animals with dignity or think about how we're treating our animals and having almost a greater connection with them than we may currently have. I feel like in that podcast, the word dignity comes up very, very often. And it seems like, oh, well, it's okay. I mean, it's an unsaid truth, but I also think that that word dignity is really important. I don't know if you have felt that theme going through the show. Maybe what are some of the takeaways that you've learned by being on your podcast and being the host of, I think it's like, what, 40 or 60 shows somewhere in that number? Yeah, I think we're on our 48th episode right now. We do one every two weeks and we've done so for about two years. Yeah, the concept of dignity is an interesting one because I think it extends beyond the traditional idea that all the law cares about is suffering. So under our laws, it's an offense to cause unnecessary suffering or distress to an animal. But it's not necessarily the case that they deserve protections for their dignity. And I think that that's the way that Peter and I and a lot of people who really care about animals tend to think about it. It's not just about making sure that they don't suffer. It's about making sure they have lives worth living and that they're respected as individuals. You know, interestingly, in some constitutions, the protection of animals' dignity is actually a legally enshrined principle. So Switzerland, for instance, they include the dignity of animals in their constitutions as a national goal and something that they all have to respect and aspire to. And that's been an interesting inclusion in their constitution because it's resulted in some very very good cases and some very good wins for animals that the Swiss animal lawyers have been able to win. So we like to think of it as not just about making sure animals don't suffer, but really treating them as full members of society and individuals who deserve our respect. So you're mentioning Switzerland. Do you have guests on your show from all around the world or are you specifically just focused on Canada? We have an emphasis on Canada because it's what we know best, but we do regularly have guests on from elsewhere. We've had guests on from New Zealand recently, from Austria, from the United States. There's a really encouraging international animal law community right now and tons of people working on these issues from all kinds of different perspectives and all kinds of different legal systems. So we definitely make sure we emphasize other jurisdictions too, because we think that we can all learn from each other. And you talk often about various conferences that the two of you plan or your organizations plan. Are those specifically for lawyers or are those the types of conferences that general individuals or advocates if, that they can attend? 
We definitely open that up to anyone who wants to come, not just lawyers. So in October of last year, we held the first ever Canadian Animal Law Conference in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And it was just fantastic. I would say that most of the presenters were lawyers, but there were plenty of scientists, plenty of advocates, researchers, PhD students, lots of other folks who were contributing in a meaningful way. And then the audience too, I think I would say at least a third of attendees weren't lawyers. It's totally of interest to other folks. And any listeners who are interested in checking that out, you can visit CanadianAnimalLawConference.ca and we posted information about next September's conference, which will be here in Toronto, September 11th to 13th. Excellent. Excellent. If folks are interested in finding out more about your organization or about the podcast, how would they do that? They can check us out at animaljustice.ca. We're having an animal justice gala at the end of April, animaljusticegala.ca that you can check out. And the podcast can be found through our website or on iTunes. Just search Paw and Order. So Camille, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? You know, just that I think we're at a very cool moment right now in terms of how we as a society view animals. We're seeing laws being passed. We're seeing judges taking these issues seriously. And it's because of people like you. It's because of your listeners and our listeners and all the folks coming together just to make it clear that this is a movement that's unstoppable, that we need to do better. And it's time for legislators and courts to listen to us. That's great. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show. And I hope we'll have you on in the future. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, Stacey, for having me on and all that you do. So for my listeners, I hope you'll consider sharing this podcast with others. Please share our conversation with Camille today. Let's get all those folks who are subscribing to the Community Cats podcast tuning in to Paw and Order. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 